prophecy was not the basis of their faith but it affirmed their faith yes and stirred them to action sometimes mm. even to intercession like it did daniel here oh god please I know my people have lived right but please let your grace flow and just as Moses was able to move the hand of God on behalf of Israel when he says then block me out of your book of life Daniel is hoping he can move God's hands to say Lord please remember your promise to your people and it should still you and I who believe to be more proactive in introducing people to the love of God Welcome to this episode of Let Us Go Deeper. Uh, my name is Jala Menya Amia with Pastor Inskip also. Pastor, good to have you again. Thank you. Always good to be here. So we are uh, going to jump into this episode. But before that, I think there is a portion of our last episode that maybe we did not tie up the loose ends very well. Yes, that is the aspect of the sanctuary being cleansed or restored. Daniel 8.14, which is a, is a pivotal verse in that whole a prophetic scenario where the little horn activity against the Most High trampling on the place of his sanctuary, removing the daily, and we mentioned evening, morning, representing the sacrifices and all the services that took place within the sanctuary. This little horn activity has Daniel stunned. And, he, and so there's this holy one that says, how long will this happen? How long will there be this trampling of the sanctuary and this little horn doing what he wants? And the voice says, unto 2,300 evenings and mornings. And we discussed about that quite a, uh, a good bit last in, yes. in last episode, about what the, the evenings and mornings, what that could be uh, implying. And, and so... Pastor, is there a specific reason why there is this period of time? Because this is a number that sort of jumps out of nowhere in some sort. What is the relevance of the 2,300? In, in, or does it have any particular uh, symbolic meaning that we can attach to it? We believe it refers to 2,300 years. Why? Because a day is comprised of evening and morning. Why does Daniel say evening, morning? I believe it is to give the whole concept of the fact that the sanctuary's service, yeah. there was morning sacrifice, there was evening sacrifice, and there was all administration going on yeah. that this little horn has trampled underfoot. Yeah, and, and my question is more of the... The time frame? Yeah, and I'm just wondering why that specific time frame. Why not 2,400? Why not 2,200? I, I really can answer that, except to say that in God's own foreknowledge and his own sovereignty, he established this time period for this work to be done so that this little horn will do his work and it will take 2,300 evening mornings or, or, or years. But the, prob the thing is, let me correct myself there. From the time that Daniel is seeing the vision of all that is happening, right? Mm -hmm. God says that that 2,300 evening morning begins at a certain point in time. When we look at chapter 9, we may be able to talk a bit more about this particular number and where it starts from, the date where it begins. Okay. But right now, we just wanted to clarify the fact that this cleansing of the sanctuary or restoring, as some versions put it, 
Some version says restored his rightful place, vindicated, cleansed, are all referring to basically the same thing. The Day of Atonement, which was very important in Israel's life and the yearly experience, meant a clearing up of the accounts, so to speak. Ten days before the Day of Atonement, there would be the shofar being blown, the trumpet, Leviticus says, and warning people the Day of Atonement is coming. A time for preparation. Because when the Day of Atonement came, any unconfessed sin, any disloyalty to God would be punished by being separated from the people, being removed from Israel. You're no longer part of God's covenant people. So every Israelite would afflict his soul, the Bible says, and, and be very pending the high priest going into the most holy place. In fact, the only real job of the high priest was to officiate on the Day of Atonement, which represented his slaying a lamb, a ram, a goat, sorry, for Christ, and one for Azazel. Azazel figuring or symbolizing, we believe, Satan, the one who truly is responsible for the sins of the world. So Christ took upon us, upon himself, the sin of the our world. sin. Yeah. But sin has to be taken care of. Christ is not the one guilty of our sins. And even though we sin, it is because Satan has deceived us, he has tempted us. So many things cause us sometimes to sin. So for those who repent, who confess, the sins are transferred symbolically where? To the lamb, to, to the to, goat. To the goat. And then that blood of the killed animal is then taken into the sanctuary and sprinkled mm -hmm. towards the veil, representing that this sin is being taken care of, removed from the sinner and being stored somewhere, the sanctuary. So on the Day of Atonement, this was also like an auditor coming in to clear the books to make sure everything is in order. You know, So the high priest would then take this blood of the lamb in. Then he would go before the most holy place, into the inner veil, before the law of God, because all sin is transgression of the, the law. law of God. Yeah. And this would represent the expiation for our sins. But then something interesting happened. The other goat was not killed. But the priest would now leave the most holy place and go back out into the courtyard, place his hands on that goat for Azazel. And then that goat would be led out into the wilderness and let free. So the sins of the people are being removed from them. We believe, therefore, since this sanctuary on earth is no longer the vital one that really deals with mankind and the world's salvation, the, the sanctuary that was in Israel, we are talking about the sanctuary above where Christ ministers as our high priest, as our mediator. So all the sins of the world are being accumulated into the sanctuary. And then on the Day of Atonement, the antitypical Day of Atonement, Christ is going out to remove guilt and shame and, and place the blame where it should be. He is bringing all the books to order, checking the lives of those who are worthy of eternal life or not. So the sanctuary being cleansed would mean, number one, man's attention and focus will once more be in the heavenly sanctuary where Christ ministers, where judgment is taking place. And two, the guilt of the sins of the world 
will now be placed upon the one upon whom it really belongs. Satan and all unrepentant sinners would now bear their own sin. Yeah, and it's interesting how that whole model uh, or picture of what the Israelites did actually and, and sort of experienced in a very real sense uh, plays out in the scope of history because that's really what the 2300 uh, mornings and evenings represents that in the scope of history of humanity that whole process is playing out as well at a macro level. Yes. And so when we get to chapter 9 to that aspect of it we will look more closely at this time factor and it's going to be very important. How important is it for us to know where we are in that process uh, as, sin- as, as, be- as believers, as sinners? It should be very important because just as the Day of Atonement in Israel was the, a key time in Israel's life where you had to be sure you are right with God. So there's a warning 10 days before giving people an advance notice. He attempted to prepare something. It, it becomes very important. So, so and, and maybe the question then becomes... Are we going to get an advance notice? When, when are we going to know that we are within that period of being really ready for that whole occasion? Well, we believe that if the 2,300 years have already been accomplished, have already elapsed, then any time after that is the of atonement time, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So any time after that would be judgment in which Christ is getting ready to return. So just living in this end of time or time of the end should be a very solemn experience for all of us. I am living in the time of the end where prophetically speaking, there is no more, how should I put it? There's no more date. There's no more divine reality to be fulfilled. Messiah's come the first time and died, he has returned, the church has received the Holy Spirit in Pentecost, has preached the gospel into all the world. So right now, one could say it is just up to the church to be ready for Christ to come. There is nothing else in the divine timetable, so to speak, that needs to be done. There is nothing that is left undone where God is concerned to be, I want to find the right words. To be fulfilled. Yes. And and maybe my little uh, uh, situation here that I'm trying to understand is, as believers and as people find ourselves in this space, as you as you've said, when that time now it, it can happen any time, the, the 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 cleansing, this cleansing of the the sanctuary can happen any time. How should we approach these prophecies? Because there is a sense again in many that. There are yet things to happen. There are yet things for us to see before we can, we, sh- we can really get to that very end. Yes. So then let's look at chapter 9. And perhaps that will help us focus in on this. Are, are you then chapter 9 of Daniel? Yes, we are. Read verse 1 and 2. Verses one and that, two. that goes in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom. In the first year of, the, of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books, according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem will be 70. Right. That, by the way, is found in Jeremiah 25. That prophecy is referring to 11 and 12 and 29 verse 10, where Jeremiah told Israel 
You're going to go down to Babylon. You're being punished for being disobedient and rebellious. But you will only remain in Babylon for 70 years. And then you will return to your land. So Daniel, who has been one of the first to go to Babylon, is now a very old man. He has already spent close to 60 years or so in Babylon. So he's thinking, wow, God is going to restore Israel. He's going to restore the kingdom. We're going to go back and and, and God is going to punish the, the nations and he will establish his kingdom on earth with his people because we have learned our lesson. Mm-hmm. And now he sees this vision and he's saying on to 2,300 evening mornings or years will the sanctuary be cleansed and it, it doesn't resonate because again, he's expecting a rapid return and establishing of God's kingdom. And God is giving him a vision of courtesy saying, Daniel, like we said before, it's not going to be that quick. Almost 10 years have passed by since that vision of the 2,300 years. And now Babylon is off the scene. Medo-Persia is now reigning. And, and he begins to think, wait, I know God said 70 years. He goes back to the books of Jeremiah and sees, yeah, 70 years. What's happening? And at this point, Daniel recognizes something. Perhaps God is not fulfilling his promise because we as a people have not been faithful. So maybe you could begin reading the beginning of his prayer from verse 3 till I tell you stop. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. This is Daniel speaking in Daniel chapter 9 verse 4. Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, fathers, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you. But this day, public shame belongs to us, the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far. Jump to verse 16. That goes... Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Right. So Daniel begins to recognize we have not lived up to our part. This is not God's problem. This is not God's issue. This is... Our fault. Interesting, Pastor. And, and I'm, I'm just going to talk, uh, stop you there a little bit because I, I see that you, there's something you want to say there. But how, it's interesting how these people that God chooses, who, <laughs> in essence, when you observe their lives, seem to be people who have lived lives that are upright. Daniel was a man who was known throughout the kingdom as someone who really was a believer, was an upright man, righteous. And in some way, he, he has lived up to the expectations of his calling of his spiritual life. Yet he seems to again count himself with the people who have been sinful and unrighteous. This is a very interesting pattern because the same was observed with Nehemiah and Ezra as well. There is something about those who truly love God and are becoming righteous that they don't see themselves separating themselves from their people. They, they count themselves with their people just as Christ counted himself among the transgressors. And so even though Daniel was a man of unreproachable character 
even though Nehemiah was living right and, and, and yet a sense that I belong to these people. I share in their sin, not because I've done it, but because I'm one with them, I identify with them, is a very distinguishing characteristic of those who are truly holy, mm-hmm. who are truly following God and have God's spirit. Remember Moses? He told God, if you're going to destroy your people, then take my name out of the book of life. Even Paul as well. Yes. A sense of I am with my people. And that is something that is missing a lot of times among those who claim to be God's people. A sense of I am better than, I am above the rest of you. You sinners in Israel, not me. Mm -hmm. But we don't see that in Daniel. Yeah, there's a deep identification with the community, with the people uh, that are are moving or at least that are even claiming uh, that relationship with God. Uh, and, and realizing that it's not a personal, it's not an issue of personal, moral, personal performance. It's about the whole. Yes, the community. I am part of the community. And their shame and loss is a mine as well. And my gain is their gain. Mm-hmm. And so Daniel identifies so totally with his people and says, Lord, I know we have sinned. We have done wrong. We deserve to be put to shame. But you are righteous. You are good. So now, Lord, please turn your anger away from your people and restore Jerusalem. So this is a deeper intercession of saying, Lord, I know we don't deserve it, but grace. Old Testament is also full of grace, Joel. There are a lot of people who believe in the Old Testament. Salvation was by something other than grace, but it has always been grace. Grace. And Daniel is appealing to God's grace here. Please, we don't deserve it. But shine forth your grace, your grace upon us, and restore us. So I interrupted the point you were making here, Pastor, because you—you, you I think you are trying to go down to really now speak to why Daniel takes on these responsibilities so strongly after realizing the prophecy is is much more complex than he initially thought. Yes, because here it is: we are not being restored, and and seventy years is upon us, and we are not being restored. Therefore, it's our fault. And, and that is something that we should be bearing in mind also. Many times the prophecies or the promises of God are not being fulfilled because we have been slack. Mm. We have not kept the covenant. We have not followed through with our promises to God. We make great promises, pledges, and we, we don't follow through. And that kind of ties God's hands. So Daniel recognizes this. And in a sense though, Joel, even as we, you had mentioned earlier that People expecting this to happen and that to happen and the other to happen. We must also recognize that in a real sense, there is nothing left for God to do in relation to our our salvation that he hasn't already done. What I'm saying is, there is nothing really to prevent Jesus from coming in 2020, except as the church is not ready. Because, and for me, this is is even made much more clearer by the fact that Jesus has already come and not only given himself, he has shown his deep interest in consummating the relationship with his people. This is not something that uh, has not been evidenced in any way by God. God shows that he really wants to connect with his people. So by all indications, God is willing to move from his end. And he has already moved and shown that he's willing to come through. And as you make the case here, it's our side of the deal that seems to be uh, making this whole uh, process uh, that much more 
I, I, I would even, I would even go as far as to say all these prophetic signs that we're expecting to happen, this should happen and then that should happen and then that should happen before Christ comes, are unnecessary for him to come. These signs are not necessary for him to come. They happen because God has foreseen the church will be slack concerning his promises. The church will not live up to its covenant relationship and, and life on the earth will continue to lag on and more and more disasters and stuff will happen until God's church finally wakes up and is consecrated. Mm-hmm. So, so the longer life continues on the earth in this condition, we will see more wars and famines and earthquakes and hurricanes and all these disasters. But it, not because they are necessary, but because God foresees them because we have not done our part. And in some way, God is almost, I will say, nudging us towards uh, living up to our end of that bargain. He is nudging us. And the prophecies were meant to make us conscious of some of these things as well and to nudge us towards the fulfillment like it did to Daniel. Like, God, you know, you could do it now if you have mercy. We, we, we will do our part, but you can do it now. And so let's look at verse 20 and to 23. That reads... While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my petition before the Lord my God concerning the holy mountain of my God. While I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I have come, I have come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out and I have come to give it. For you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. Okay. So Daniel is praying for three weeks. And it says, ever since the first day you began, began to pray, I, Gabriel, was sent to give you the answer. But the prince of uh, withheld me. That The prince of Persia, sorry, um, stood me up. That's a great glimpse that God has given you and, and given to me about the battle that occurs in the unseen realm, the spiritual battle over your life and mine. Remember, ap- apocalyptic prophecy, remember, is a removing of the veil where we see history through God's eyes, where God tells us these are the things that are happening and these are the powers that are battling and using human agencies, but I am still in control. I am still running things. Well, here we got a glimpse of it. So Daniel is praying and it's taking a long time to get the answer, not because God is delaying, but because there are spiritual agencies and realities that God has to deal with. So Gabriel is pictured as fighting against the prince of Persia, who in this case would be Satan or one of his minions who's trying to keep Cyrus stubborn and not allow him to give this edict to send God's people back home, etc. So we see a glimpse of this battle. And now the angel has come to explain the vision. So far, there's only one part of the vision that really has to be explained, if you check it out carefully, because we already know who the beast are. He's identified this little horn and what he will do. The big part of the vision that was not explained before is this issue of the 2000 300 yes. evenings and mornings. So when it says, let me show you understanding of the vision, it's speaking about this part that really 
has not been explained and that has Daniel concerned and alarmed. So that reads, and this is the explaining of Gabriel of the vision, in verse 24 of chapter 9 of Daniel, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy okay. place. Um, how should I put it? The angel says to Daniel, God has been patient with you and your people. You are right. We, you have not lived up. But he has still given you more grace, more probation. Seventy sevens, or seventy weeks, which means seventy times seven years, 490 years Mm -hmm. is given to your people, that is the Jews, to finish transgression, to get it right, so to speak, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, this vision and prophecy of what God is going to do, return the people to their home, establish them and all of that and to anoint the most holy in other words if israel could only live up to her covenant promises god could usher in everlasting righteousness christ could establish jerusalem as the great city of the earth where all the nation will come and bring their gifts in, in other words what we expect at a second coming mm-hmm. a restored earth and all of that Israel had that promise in potentiality in the Old Testament. Had they followed through and lived up the covenant promises. And so the, the verse 25 reads, No one understands this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem mm-hmm. until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and the 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood. And until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. Okay. How shall I put it? The beginning of this prophecy, this 2,300 years, according to the angel is from the going forth of the edict to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. There were three edicts that were ushered from Persia towards Israel, from Cyrus who said to um, the prophet, hey, go back and start your worship. Go back and rebuild your temple. Mm-hmm. Then there was the one by, by Darius II who said, you know, with Nehemiah and Ezra, we spoke about the last time. Go rebuild your walls and reestablish. And then from Artaxerxes, who says, go and, and run your government. A certain degree of self-governing. And, and according to this here, this is the edict from which this 70 weeks will be counted. From that last edict by Artaxerxes, which we believe was about 457 BC. So there were three, but the one that seemed to be the most complete that fulfills this prophecy would be the one by Actus in 457. And it says they would rebuild the walls and they would reestablish government and life in, in, in Israel. And then from that, Messiah would come. The anointed one, Messiah would come. 
And then in the middle of the week, he would be cut off. If you consider 490 years from 457 BC, it goes up to about 34 AD, those 490 years. But before that, seven years from 34 AD would take us back to about 27 AD. Do you know, do you know what happened in 27 AD? Mm-mm. Jesus Christ was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him and he says, the Spirit has anointed me. He became Messiah, the anointed one, in 2780. Then in the middle of the week, would be like three and a half years later, what happened in the year 8031 more or less? The killing. What happened to Jesus Christ? He was crucified. Right. It says in the middle of the week, Messiah will be cut over, not for himself, but for the people. And then it says, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who is the prince that is to come? There's some divergence of views here. Some people believe it referring to the Roman princes who came and destroyed the, the city. The prince to come would be from Rome. We believe it refers to the Messiah. He is the real prince who is to come. And his people, Israel, by rejecting him, rejecting his call to salvation, and being stubborn and holding on to their rights and stuff, they brought upon themselves destruction from the Romans. It was their stubbornness and their rebellion that incited Rome to decide enough of you and bring about that destruction. So that is why we believe the prince to come refers to Jesus Christ, and the people would be the Jews who didn't, really understand the times. Now we understand what Jesus says, O Jerusalem, if you had only known the things that pertain to your peace, and now your city is left unto you desolate. So this is what this prophecy is about. Why 2,300 years, God in his foreknowledge is seeing it will take that amount of time. Mm-hmm. As life goes on, the politics and when the, the rising of the little horn and what he does and all of these things will take us down to that time. And when he himself will now enter in to begin to wrap things up. And we're going to look at that some more in the next episode. However, let's read verse 27. Yeah, and maybe Pastor, uh, just to add a point there in terms of this number, these very specific numbers that seem to be given here. Mm. One thing that I can for sure speak to is the fact that numbers give you a preciseness and a, and a kind of sense that there is an end to what is happening. There is right. a time frame. Uh, because th- I believe that there are many, uh, believers, there are many Christians who at times get the sense that this has been going on for forever. It, it has no <laughs> start. It has no end. And, and maybe, Ultimately, there's no meaning to this. There's no sense of time and direction. But right. here, prophecy sort of puts um, a, a really a, a stop to that, and because it gives very a sort of specific timeline of how events will turn out. Yes, one could say that is true, and it it confirms God's foreknowledge and His sovereignty mm-hmm. that He could specify years in advance hundreds of years, thousands of years in advance, things that will happen and that they happen according to divine timetable. When the fullness of the time has come, God sent forth his son. So everything is calculated 
so that God's people could know where they are along mm-hmm. this continuum. It kind of makes us think of why Simeon was so expectant of Messiah coming in this time. He was studying the prophecies. And, and because I keep saying this, Joel, prophecies are only understood by those who are living right, who are studying and anticipating God's revelation. The Bible says the wicked will not understand. So people like Simeon and Anna and, and, and even the, the wise men who came to visit were studying scriptures. They, they wanted to follow God and in studying and seeking verification of what they are studying, when the signs appear, the spirit of prophecy, that voice, that Holy Spirit in front of says, this is it. So these men left the east when they saw the star to follow and find Jesus Christ. And they said, where is he born, king of the Jews? How did they know that? Because they were studying and they recognized the sign when it came. So in that sense, prophecy confirms the faith. We can't say it enough. Of those who believe, it doesn't turn unbelievers into believers. It only confirms the faith of those who believe. Yeah, and, and even further on to qualify that, Pastor, the studying is not for the sake of uh, just predicting or just having a grasp of the future, but it's a study grounded in the fact that in the immediate context, you're, you're, you're grounded in who God is and you're really uh, pursuing a purity of experience even in that moment. And these prophecies only add on to an already established relationship with God. They are not the, the basis for your relationship with God. No. People who accept the gospel or who jump into the gospel bandwagon because of some prophetic sign, because of some great portent, tend not to have staying faith. It's like the seed that fell, you know, on stony ground. Because remember we mentioned 1844 when William Miller, how many people accepted that Christ was coming, etc. What do you think happened on October 23rd, 1844, when Christ didn't appear. Desperation, worry, anxiety. More than that. For those who came in just in the excitement and the, the, the overwhelming nature of the message, you know, Jesus is coming. Look at these signs that happened. The stars fell on, on the earth and all of that. They left. The world became splintered. Because the, their connection, their relationship with God was based on on that particular prediction yes, uh, and, and a fulfillment of that particular reading of history. So as long as that didn't fulfill what they were hoping for, they walked away. And, and, and in a sense, we have kind of misused the prophecy because we have used it as a sort of, not a whipping tool, but something to entice people, you know, judgment, look at all these signs, jump in quickly. I am not saying that fear is not a motivator. Fear is a very quick, powerful, and powerful motivator, but it has no staying power. As long as the stimulus of that fear is removed, the actions that was, that came about because of that fear disappear. But even God himself does not draw us to himself through fear. He no. uses the, the very opposite of fear, which is love. Love. He uses fear in this context to whip us, to warn us, to shake us up somewhat, 
and to remind us of that harsh reality to come. But what really keeps us, what really sustains us for the love of Christ is what constrains us. And that is why John says in 1 John chapter 5, there's no fear in love. Perfect love cast out all fear. fear. Because mm-hmm. fear has to do with punishment. Mm-hmm. And most of the time when people talk about these prophecy Joel, isn't it always in the context of judgment? Let's get right because the end is here. To avoid yes. that punishment, yeah. And that is why even as we study these prophecies, let us remember the ones to whom they were given, Daniel, Abraham, Moses, we mentioned before why we said they were given a glimpse of the travails of God's people, didn't need these prophecies in order to live right. They were already living, living right. right. Yeah. These prophecies just gave them a glimpse into God's own mind and timetable and let them know it's not going to happen soon. Mm-hmm. And it stirred people like Daniel to pray for his people recognizing it was in their hands what God would do. Yeah, the prophecy was not the basis of their faith, but it affirmed their faith. Yes. And stirred them to action sometimes, mm. even to intercession, like it did Daniel here. Oh God, please, I know my people have lived right, but please let your grace flow. And just as Moses was able to move the hand of God on behalf of Israel, when he says, then blot me out of your book of life, Daniel is hoping he could move God's hands to say, Lord, please remember your promise to your people. And it should still you and I who believe to be more proactive in introducing people to the love of God. Knowing the prophecies and understanding them should stir us to a greater desire to wake people up to the love of God. Thank you for joining with us through this season and even for listening to this episode. Let Us Go Deeper is an independent ministry and your contribution are essential to sustaining this journey. Please make any contributions you may to patreon.com slash l-u-g-d. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash l-u-g-d. And if this is your first time, please subscribe. And if you're one of our regular listeners, share the link Invite your friends to listen in and they too can be blessed by this podcast. Let us go deeper.